Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Not to tell you something, people. I uh, I haven't shaved my head lately. I don't know why. And I, as I said, you know, Joanne's mom was out this week, and her niece comes in tomorrow. So I don't, I don't really want to shave it because I leave a mess when I shave my head. But it's weird when you're bald in the back and your hair starts growing back it really itches and I'm not used to this so I've been scratching my head and I think people think I have dandruff which I don't because I'm one of those people that I have actually I have always I've always shampooed even when I shave my head I shampoo so just in case my hair grows but it's it's really irritating because I keep scratching my head and I think they think I have lice or I have dandruff. Anyway, my I bring this up because my next guest he got, he he has a haircut. You brought your hair. You're laughing already. It, it, you got it's, me laughing already. It's That's Rick Overton, brother. How you doing, hey, Rick? man? That's uh, true. You shave your head; it does all this crazy. By the way, that's not the only thing that goes crazy when you shave it. Oh yeah. Or exactly. so I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> There's areas you shave, and the person just starts going insane. Well, you. Yeah, you yeah, you yeah. Uh, you keep the beard for you. You're always working. You know, it's so funny. You were on my show years ago, and and you're you're one. You're not only a uh, an amazing stand up, which I will say that because you are, but your IMDb you have like a hundred and sixty. I don't even know you have that because I do this research. You have a hundred and sixty seven credits on IMDb. Yeah, yeah. So I got a few. It's crazy. Lucky. Uh, yeah, sure. It's crazy. Now, now, now! How did you get into this business? Were you a funny kid? I mean, how did the whole yeah. the whole thing start? Yeah, I was how a funny this all My dad was a jazz musician, so he loved comedy, and he loved Jonathan Winters because Jonathan Winters was a verbal jazz musician. So he would uh, play the Jonathan Winters for me and make me fall in love with the comedy, which happened. And uh, I would watch them open for my parents. My mom was one of the cordettes, Lollipop, Mr. Sandman. My dad arranged for Monk in New York, and so I'd go to the clubs and I'd see comedians. And it stuck in my head that I could share the stage with my parents without competing with them. You know, years of uh, self-examination later. But turned out that's what the, some of the drive was. And uh, I got to be uh, the, the, the guy that traveled with the least amount of crap in the bus. <laughs> they provide a mic. I don't have to bring a goddamn thing except a notepad, you know. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> it's like you're the guy in the band that plays the harmonica or the triangle. You know? right. It's like no giant, not a giant schlep for you to get out of the bus. Um, and uh, so I saw that there was a connection between comedy and acting right away because of Peter Sellers, which was also a guy my dad was a huge fan of. And so I learned about Peter Sellers thanks to dad. And... I had a uh, a childhood that was, you know, standard kids doing dopey shit and getting caught and getting in trouble in class. But once I saw a little smile out of a couple of girls in class and they tilt their head when they look at me, I'm like, oh, damn it, I'm locked. Right. I'm not, there goes the cowboy and astronaut part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Screw that, I man. Guess I'm, I guess I'm stuck now. <laughs> Trying to get this level of popularity the rest of my life for, you know, those giant anonymous bulk shovel scoops of faceless approval. Now, now, when did you start hitting the comedy clubs? Because it was early. It was, you know, you were near, you grew up near New York. So Yeah, I grew up in New York and then right across from Englewood, New Jersey. 
So when did you start hitting the clubs? When did, when did all this start happening? And then, I mean, it must have just been an amazing scene because it was it was early. It was, it was you know, it was the club, the comics, you know, that was that was somewhat new, right? Besides, like, you know, as you said, the jazz and the vaudeville, not vaudeville, the jazz, stuff like that. What was it like when the comedy club started opening? I mean, I mean, was it hard to get on stage or how did you just start approach that technique? I kind of, I did school stuff into a skit, you know? They gave you little things to do. Schools with arts. You must have a school with arts. A school that just teaches your kid to just develop one half of their head, the kid's going to go nuts. They're not going to be complete or happy or any of those things in their lives. You have to give them a full, rounded arts program. It's developing both halves of their head. It isn't up to you. It isn't about your opinion or religion. It's about letting the child have both sides of their skull form correctly. And then decide a life, as opposed to one half dominant, and they just think they're they're doing things they hate, and they drink themselves to death, because they never really chased who they actually are. So I think always have an arts department, but I'm so lucky I caught one where I was, that it made me think I had a chance. Teachers would actually nod and give a laugh when I was funny, and just, no, go back and do your math thing. They actually saw another thing. And once having seen it, they would, they would give you a chance to prove you've got the chops as opposed to they shut it down now or put you on a pill now or some bullshit like that. I don't go for that stuff, man. I think a kid should have every kind of expression and practice, whether it's music or theater or what, because they don't know who they are yet. And when they find out then, I found out then. That's right. why I'm here today, because I found out then. Well, you know, every kid should get that chance. Am I wrong about that? No, here, you know, I agree with you because it's so funny. I was just talking to uh, my girlfriend's mom. She's in town. And it's just you made that point about the the pill. You know, everyone's on a pill now, and it's like you know when when we were when I was younger. You know, if you were a little hyper, you know, you didn't have ADHD. You were just a little bit of hyper. And if, if you daydreamed, which all kids did, they didn't yeah. give you something to stop you daydreaming. Because I'm going to tell you something: when you daydream, that's you know we always talk about the the. the field of being creative you know when you when you get your ideas when you're driving or when you're almost asleep when you daydream your mind's at a different level but it's supposed to be at that level because that's when you create i'll tell you let's list some of the people who daydreamed einstein daydreamed newton daydreamed uh, uh edison daydreamed lincoln daydreamed People who say don't daydream need to shut the fuck up forever. <laughs> they just need to be duct taped shut. So, so you 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 had a good school like that. So now you get out, and so now where do you where do you start your comedy career at? I start my comedy career career as in paid career. Well, just a as career when... as in it's sunk in, sunk in. Well, maybe in school, like that story I was telling. Then a couple of school plays and. Uh, there's going to be a revival of a band in New York uh, that I I was pals with at my high school, Dwight Morrow, when I go to New Jersey. Uh, they were uh, uh, Danny and Dave Bennett and a bunch of guys, uh, Tony's kids, who uh, uh, had Quacky Duck and his Barnyard Pals. And I would get up and open for them. It was my first brutal comedy gig opening for music with a rough, <laughs> unformed act, you know. And I still, I, and out of the whole thing, I got maybe three laughs. And then the rest was, eh, okay, you know. And I walked off going, okay, I got three. It's a start. What do you want from me? I'm a kid. I right. got three. As opposed to, I got nothing. I got three. 
I suppose you went up there. I mean, that's that's a big step too. I did a set. I went up. I looked out at him, the crowd, and I absorbed the the loss and was a little fidgety, but continued anyway. Which to me is, you know, you got to be able to do that part, is you take the hit and you go on anyway, and expect the first few to look kind of nervous and hummery and dry mouthy and all that shit until until you get adjusted to that, because you'll never stop having rough sets. What you can do is stop having the earliest reaction you ever had to it. Right. Because that's like I used to do. When it's I like would... landing a jet on a carrier. Right. The first time you're bringing a jet on a rocking boat at 170 knots down to a dead halt on a cable, you know, your heart's going ba 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 in your chest. By the 100th landing, you're like, here we go. All right. And there's Joey up on the deck waving at me. Okay. I'm going to get uh, chicken for lunch. <laughs> So, as you as you get the strap burn into your shoulders, you know. Yeah, so so you do that, and you got the three, and that's good because you and then so you're just then you know I got to go forward. So where do you where do you take it from there? Lots of ups and downs. I had two teams. I was teamed at first with Ton T O N N Pastor, who uh, now is a very uh, he's a published poet and author, and uh, deals in sales because his dad was in very high up in mass meat distribution to grocery stores like top end of that so he was very intelligent to go into that and do the art on the side so he could have kids and all those other things that depend on a steady income that I I don't really think in terms of and uh, turned out to uh, be a very uh, creative individual on his own even though he wasn't really doing what we did anymore but I think it started that engine so that even though he's a nine to fiver paying the bills doing the thing off the left half of the head that right half didn't ever give up because he got the training in our school to keep that other candle that pilot light of creativity lit and let it tell you what kind of thing it wants to do to keep itself alive because later you just want the skill set it wasn't about the separate thing and uh, so after him I uh, was looking for another partner after he took off to go. And I had a little time off, and I was lost. I liked being in a team because I was scared to be on my own. You know, I just was. And I uh, didn't think I could do it. So I relied on someone I could keep cranking my head left and looking over to, you know. And uh, then I met Roger Sullivan, and buddy Bill Spitz uh, put me in touch with his buddy, Roger Sullivan. And Roger and I formed a team, and we went to Watkins Glen, the rock concert. Do you remember Watkins Glen? It yeah. was going to be the next. Uh, it was going to be the next Woodstock, right? Yeah, I remember Watkins. Where, where is Watkins Glen exactly? Is that in Pennsylvania? That's in the, no, that's uh, in uh, New York. They have a racetrack uh, out there. That's a racetrack, yeah. And so we went to that one because my ride fell through for Woodstock, and I was I was too young to drive. So this one we could drive. We got to, and uh, once there. We started doing a skit while the band was setting up. We just started riffing a bit, coming up with laughs and jokes, and a whole crowd of people waiting for the band to set up their instruments turned around and looked at us. And I went, okay, I guess we're a team now. So we did a team for a few years. But here's an interesting phenomenon that happens when you do a team for a, a while, is you eventually, you go from not making any money when you were artists. Whenever you're uh, not making money, you can stay in the art, and everything was brilliant, everyone was good. But as soon as they start paying you, it starts divvying off into who was more important than the team for that one check, because they don't pay twice the amount for that time slot. The right. two of you got to split that amount now. And that's, so, that, that causes friction. That causes a shitload of friction. It, 
it turns it from the art form to the business. And like every other thing in business, it ugly, cold negotiation. And it broke the team up. And creative differences. And also, he was very into the structure of the bits and didn't as much believe in his ability to improv as I believed in mine. Even though you could see it was in his blood, he could do it too, but he didn't see himself that way. So when I did it, it was kind of not as comfortable for him. And we had some conflicts. But as a structure sketch go, guy goes, he's about the best I had ever seen. So I understand why he focused on that, because that was his skill set. Now, now, But I was finding a new skill set in me, and so that's where we started to have our problems. Is I'm finding a new part. We've got a kid, you know, we're still in our earliest 20s. And we're figuring all this shit out. So there's, uh, you're still still room for you to grow. But if the other person has it sort of set up, they don't want that part, then it's going to be more tough. So that's sort of what we went through. And some years of not such a good vibe. And towards the end, he, he had a bad heart and he didn't make it. But we got to be friends towards the end. And I was very grateful that that was the case. That we got to reconcile a little bit. I sure wanted that. See, that's good. That's because that's always good. Because you're a team, and you know, and there's something that you know, it's like a band. You know, yeah, you, you're going to go totally. through stuff. You know, you have egos, and that's the thing. I mean, all you know, and you, you know, performers, we have an insecurity, but we also have egos. That's what drives us to the stage. And I can imagine, like you know, when you do stand up, it's you. But with a team, you, you probably do. And when you're younger, because when we're, I would say when we're young, we don't really know that much. You sit there and you're going, yeah. you feel like, okay, you know what? I'm the one who's getting the laughs, and the egos pop in, and that's what you know is hard. So, yeah, and also you haven't had all the other experiences that make you a little more of a grown up yet later. But you're given this completely grown up set of responsibilities in the entertainment business, you know, and you're just a kid who has to look like you have it together, and you're faking it, and you're just holding on for dear life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So no, no. How did you sit there? You know, you were. You said you were weren't comfortable being on stage by yourself. How did you get over that? That you know, being a little fearful. Of that how did you sit there and go? Okay, did you just sit there and go? I love, I love comedy. I just need to be. I just have to get my ass up there and perform. Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, I took Irving Galvin's school and I got some basics, but having studied with Phil Foster was elemental to me. Me and Raj took Phil Foster's comedy course, and you think, oh, what is that guy? Phil Foster, he's old school. He was great old school. He gave us solid fundamentals. We were in class with comedian George Wallace. It was, there was not just slouches in there. There were some big guys that went on to great things, and Irving had, had a great influence on, on, on me and Raj. Some basics that I take with me today. And then the rest of it is you hit and you miss. But I think studying improv with J.J. Barry and Martin Harvey Friedberg in New York changed my life. I think maybe more than anything else I've ever done in entertainment was to start studying with those guys. It was so important. I was so grateful. How did it change your life? My career. I think if you look on my IMDb, you're going to see that what is in there more than half of that they knew me because I do improv and I know how to aim it at a camera and that's its own thing it's not the same as on stage but it came from believing that that part of my brain can solve lots of problems here 
Now, and and, uh, and so I, I would say uh, Mark Lano and Joanne Astro giving me a shot and playing with Off the Wall on New York was um, one of the one of the giant breakthrough moments for me. When I was starting to break up with Raj, and I go, "What else do I got? Where's my next team? Oh, I'm stuck without a family. I'm screwed." And then they let me come up and play, and I started to feel like I loosened up, and I started to feel like I can make families where I go, because that's part of what that is. Make a little family for yourself, and you play with them, you know. So, all of that said, Roger, I'm grateful for every split second of all the time I had to to do the comedy with Raj. I learned so much, and uh, I look back on it now, and we made some great skits for the day. I, I, I wouldn't defend them all material-wise today, but I think if you look at it as two kids that you can forgive with your own kind eye. Can you look back, Steve, at your stuff with a kind eye, and even though you wouldn't do the joke today, you get that that was fine then? Yeah, you know, I it's, it's weird. I look at some of my bits, and I've had people say to me, because I don't perform much anymore, and are you there? I'm here. Okay. I've had people sit there and say, hey, remember that bit you did? And I'm like, wow, you know, you look back at your bits and you go, it was just, that's what we were doing. And and that's what's, that's how you grow. You know, like I used yeah. to, I used to do a lot of one-liners and, and now, <laughs> now I, yeah. I tweet them because one, I'll be honest, I don't have the brain capacity to remember a 30 or 40 minute set <laughs> of one-liners. I look at a John Mendoza. I go, "How the hell does Mendoza do it? How does Mendoza got to do like do two, it, the machine? Two thousand uh, jokes. The guy's got to be doing two thousand. You sit there and you're like, holy shit, man! I, I mean, we don't. That's pe- amazing. Like, people don't recognize that. You know, as you know, you know yeah. the term civilians. They don't get that. You know, they think, yeah. oh yeah, how much goes into someone even doing. Ten minutes of one-liners, like you're the king of improv. Everyone knows that. You know, I, can, I don't. I'm not a one-liner guy right. so much. I have the occasional one, but that's not my. But you, no one thinks of. Don't go to Rick for a one-liner. Right. Necessarily. So when you go on stage, you can improv and you can go yeah. off on the things. But for a yeah. one-liner, most one-liner guys aren't good at the improv. That's why they're doing the one-liners. And it's amazing. Uh, That's what's amazing. <laughs> it's true. It's what's it's amazing about the, the this craft. art form. It's a beautiful art form. It's amazing, craft. yeah. Rodney. Rodney, man. You know who's the preeminent authority on Rodney is Robert Klein. And you have to see the movie about him that's coming out. It's a documentary. It's either out or coming out. It's been making the festivals. It's called I Still Can't Stop My Leg. And uh, directed by Marshall Fine. And it's a wonderful honoring of wasn't he a, isn't he a hero of yours? Oh, he was just, I mean, all those guys, you know, even, even looking back, you know, and I think because I grew up near Philadelphia, you know, we all knew Brenner and, and, you know, I grew up in a time where, you know, Brenner was everywhere and Brenner was somewhat of a one line guy. I mean, no, he was observational, but he was, you know, he was sitting there. It was these guys that we watched. It was just different. Like they were like, I gave Brenner a line when I was a kid. Oh, that's a breakthrough moment for me. It's the first time a big name took a line from me was Brenner. What happened? It's Catch, and he's doing the bit. You ever notice when you lock your keys in your car, and you get a coat hanger, and you're trying to get them out, and some guy walks by and says, hey, you lock your keys in your car? And he goes, no, I always get into my car this way, he said. It was the original button. I said, can you tag it with... Thank God the top was down, or I never would have gotten it. <laughs> so he he used that. 
He used it. I saw it. And I was just so happy. And that high five and everybody. Yeah, that's one of those things, you know. When you're a kid and you get the credit of you gave someone a bit and they used it. Over the years, I've just I've been able to throw someone a bit here and there. I gave Jerry Seinfeld the bit about the moose. He, he had the bit about the moose being airlifted out on a harness. Okay. The moose doesn't know what the hell's going on. He's just looking around. The moose can't figure out the whole dynamic of a helicopter and relocation for his safety. So the uh, I said, can you give him the added thing that he doesn't? He thinks, hey, I, now I have super moose power and I must rescue moose kind. You know. <laughs> And so uh, it's like a super moose. He doesn't know why he's flying. And uh, well, you'd have to see it. Anyway, it was uh, it was another proud moment to have a pal do something on TV that you kind of kicked in on. Now, now, what was it like at Catch? Because I know you were on the sixth. You were on the sixth uh, annual Young Comedian Special. Yes. And now, I'm, and like, what was comedy like then? Because all you guys were. It, it was different then. It's like you know. Yeah, it was you, less of it. You could you, whatever you did was more unique because it wasn't repeated right. a thousand times ahead of you. It, that's this is kind of like a saturated market now, man. You got to know that's true, Steve. Oh, Even yeah. though there's great innovation, it's like a little bit saturated now because oh, of years and I'm not saying years, decades, decades of TV kind of using it up. Now, what was it like, though, back then? I mean, just like, like, it must have been a spark. I mean, you know, like, it's just an energy. Oh, it felt like everything was, yes, everything was forward. Everything was an improv. Everything was possible. There was not enough, there weren't enough comics for all the clubs opening. And they were begging you to do a spot. Isn't that crazy? I'm just a thought. Like, Isn't that crazy? Now you <laughs> see, like, like, I mean. And I, you knew, the whole time we were looking at each other going, ooh. This is good, and uh, this is not gonna last, boys. This girls, this is gonna go away, and we better be smart little cookies here. Figure out what else we are, like actor or writer. Well, I know. I didn't know that you wrote for the Dennis Miller show. I wrote on the HBO Dennis Miller Live series. How did 90s. that How did that come about? Kevin Rooney was moving on to do another gig and recommended me to. He grandfathered me in. So what is that like for a guy like you who's a stand-up, who likes a lot of improv, to all of a sudden you're sort of being more contained? I've heard yeah. a lot of times it's yeah. hard to go in the writer's room. Yeah, uh, uh, it's, it's a, it was a tough writer's room, but he knew Dennis knew me for so long. He kind of, he was easy on me, you know. He can be, he can play pretty rough with some of them I saw it. So, you know, he just got to go, that's the way this college works, you know. Um and there were parts I was stronger with. I was pretty rant dominant because my brain works like that. Every now and then I'd get a few one-liners in, but it wasn't my strong suit. I did a lot of photo captions at the end, but I was proudest of the rants. That's where my lion's share of contribution was because I also string on thoughts in a rant myself. Yeah, you do. I know you. You you have some. Uh, you like to rant, but you also. What I like is on Facebook. You uh you. I want to talk about your Facebook account because you, you, you put up a lot of political things, but you don't preach, which is weird. I share what other people, I don't generate any of them. If something piques my interest, I put it up. I say, thank you for sharing this. And then let people make their own opinions about it. You know, as long as they're not a bully or a jerk, I'll let you stay on. Once you're rude, you're gone. That's good. No ifs, ands, or buts. I don't care. I don't care if I know you. You're gone. You will go. You'll be gone. Now, so we'll just have to be real friends. Oh, I'm sorry. We're just actual friends now. Yeah. Oh. 
it is amazing social media. Yeah. I mean, just because yeah. also, I mean, the way people. You unfriended me, Phil. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's like, I mean, I sit there, I, and I sometimes, I think sometimes it just unfriends people. Like, I don't, I don't unfriend. Honestly, I don't, I don't even know how to unfriend someone. I, I don't even take the time. I go, you know what? If, if, there's no reason for me. I mean, if they're idiots, you can block them. But it happens sometimes where you actually, Somehow, accidentally, someone got unfriend and they sent me a message like, "Why'd you unfriend me?" I'm like, "I didn't unfriend you. What the hell are oh, you talking I, about?" I hit that button with my thumb. I've done a couple of accidental, uh, like a butt dial. I right. butt block people. <laughs> so, so now, oh, sorry, man. That was my ass's decision. Right. That wasn't mine. <laughs> so, I let my butt choose certain friends. <laughs> so. So when when did you move out west? Because you were in New York. When did you eventually move out west? And you lived in San Francisco for a while, right? No, nah, I just worked there a lot. It seemed like I lived there because I worked so much there. I was just staying in hotels and friends' houses. But I lived in L.A. I moved to L.A. in 80. And what brought you out? Just, you had to... Chris Albrecht. The comedy boom. Chris Albrecht, who was now, you know, the head of stars uh, programming, is... Uh, was a, an agent for ICM and brought a bunch of comedians, Gilbert Gottfried, Joe Piscopo, me, Richard Lewis, a whole bunch of guys all just gilded of us, just dumped us on the deck of L.A. like a boat, like a fish. And we're all fish out of water until we learn to swim there. Yeah, it must, we are. It's, uh, where did you live first? I always I always wonder where people got their first apartment. I had this little apartment on Leland oh. Way. It was like 300 Leland Way, yeah. For a studio, it was 385. This is 15 years ago. Where did you move in 1980 when you came out here? I first stayed with Greg Travis on Genesee, across from uh, Fairfax High. Okay. And then, and then I got my own place, and uh, I moved to uh, behind Cantor's. Okay. Uh, where it was like the Comedy Arms. It was Larry Miller and a bunch of guys all staying in in that apartment there. On Hayworth is what that one was, and uh, it was like right directly behind. You're just going to the alley and around, and you're in Canada. So I was right there, and I stayed for a while. But then my place got broken into on the ground floor. They goes those the crank out slat windows that you, eh, 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 and you crank them out. Right. The guys just went eh, 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 yeah. just, un- <laughs> just slid them out of the slats and uh, took all my shit. Took my giant, heavy, clunky VCR, all stuff. Now that I'd be wondering what the fuck I'd be doing with all that stuff back then. That's all my. That's all my current level of technology shit. You know? <laughs> and so they got that, and I uh, went, okay, screw this place. I'm gonna move. And then uh, you know, I just bounced around town. I went from spot to spot. Then I got a house out in the valley for a while, and uh, then the earthquake made that untenable. And then I moved to other places. So. Yeah, you know, I was on Holt for a while. When I lived, when I worked on uh, at HBO, I was on Holt. Okay, so, you know where Holt is down at? They call it Beverly Hills adjacent. I know. Don't you love that? It's like I, I live. You, you get to say the word without paying the prices. Exactly. It's so stupid. You look at it, you go. It's like I live in Burbank, uh, you know, but is North Hollywood Burbank adjacent? You know, it's like it, it, they people just make this crap up, and people look, and it's it's sad because you move into LA and you go, oh wow. Beverly Hills adjacent, and next thing it's like, well, you're in Playa del Rey. That's not. Yeah. You're not even near. You're not even. You're in Palms. You're not even near Beverly yeah. Hills. But well, you're adjacent if you're like Carl Sagan yeah. doing galactic distances. Yeah. 
Uh, now, I want to talk about, uh, well, now you, you, how did you become, that Sagan joke. oh, well, yeah, no, but you know, everyone knows Sagan, but now uh, they'll do it. Okay, good, else. good. Yeah, yeah, come on, kids. Stay with the Sagan. If man. you don't know, I mean, I do. Jeff Marger gives me crap about that because I always make these old TV references. I did an Esther Roll reference on stage a few months ago, uh, and the guy in front of me is like, after me, he's like, I can't believe you did that. And I go, dude, I do it for me. I like the Esther role. You got to do some of them for you. <laughs> Aren't you happy to see? Are you happy to see Martyr back at the two mics again? Oh, you know it's funny. I I Man, actually, we got to get that boy back on the on the planks because he, he he made very innovative, smart, wonderful, inspiring comedy. I'm going to tell you a story right now. Rick. About a year ago, I was do, I was performing. I wasn't performing a lot, and I was doing this awful. Well, not awful, but it was an Italian restaurant in in uh, Eagle Rock and it was run by these two twins who weren't Italian they're Irish and their claim to fame was they were on Hell's Kitchen but they had a comedy night so I said to the guy I said I said Martyr if I can get you on this stage you're going up I don't know Coop you know I, don't. I said no Jeff I don't know Jeff if I can get you on you're getting up so I actually I got his ass up on stage and it was great to see when him. was this? this was about a year ago and he got you were the one that got him on stage. I too. got him on stage. I said, "You're getting up Go, there," baby. and he wouldn't let me do my lazy eye bit because he had a whole bit written about Cosby and his lazy eye. So I said, <laughs> "All right, Jeff." So we, you got to talk to him and get his ass on stage because yeah, I'm cause, trying. I'm trying because you guys, he, but you got him. You I got, got him that one him. time, and then he disappeared. Uh, but now, 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 you when now you when you were in San Francisco, when did you form a good friendship with? I know you were very close with Robin Williams. When did you form a? Oh yeah. When did you oh, form a good friendship York. with oh, him? I, I was friends with him back in the seventies uh, in New York when Elaine Boozler brought him by Catch a Rising Star, and I was just starting to think, uh oh, I think my team is breaking up, and I wanted to just goof around and play with other people, and somehow Robin sussed that, and we had a mutual love of Jonathan Winters. And the reputation around the club was, I'm another one of the actively, physically wild, improvisational guys. Only I live in New York, and so come out and meet this guy. And so we met because they said we had mutual energy. Uh, not the style exactly, we weren't exactly the same style, but we had a kind of high energy, young guys. So... Um, I, I, uh, we befriended. He just started goofing around. He learned to slowly trust that I'm okay to play with. He was a little bit, he'll do, I'll handle it. I'll handle it. You can just jump in here and there, but let me get it. And they said, hey, wait, this is okay. We can wingtip it like Blue Angels. And then that's from, for decades on after that, the trust was in and on we went. What is, I mean, you know, everyone says you guys two on stage was magic. I know you did stuff, stuff yeah, with Fox Morton. It was, he didn't want it videotaped because he's a product and management wouldn't let him do it, you know. What was it like, though, just when you would... What was the sheer energy like? Because you're both guys, you love winners, you've known each other for a long time. When you guys hit the stage, I mean, what was the trust like? Was it like a trust like when a, you know, a lead singer knows his guitarist is going to break that jam solo and come back? I mean, how was the trust and how did you guys feed off each other? I just, you know, it's... it's I think when, when there was a window... I took a lead as opposed to I'll always let him start a scene. I'll jump in with a premise. I'm the sheriff, and then he has to be the cowboy or whatever, and then we got a lot of laughs on the fact that I initiated a thing that paid off. So that's where trust comes from. You know, I'll give you a shot to do it, but if you keep fucking, the, fucking it up and not going anywhere, I'm not going to trust you. 
but I will if you, you let us somewhere and, and we all got good laughs and it was win-win. Now, I think as an improver, you have to think in terms of am I making win-win for everybody when I entered? Now, with not you, just me. You're, and you have such a good background in improv. How do you think that has helped cause with auditions? Do you think that makes you... Oh, my God, does it help? Everybody listening in, please listen to this, that you got to... They love you when you can play a little bit and embellish on an audition for a commercial or something like that. And yes, you do run the risk of them just taking your shit and giving it to another guy to do your riff. I've seen it countless times. But in the in the mix of all the countless times, they will double back and give one or two of them to you. As opposed to, you never got a shot at any of it. And it was always just a dream and it never paid off. Because once you get two of them, People start to talk about those two you did, and you slowly build the heat. You can't always be the hot firecracker one up front. Sometimes you got the slow build, and how do you endure that? Knowing improv shortens that ride for you because they love you and bring you in sooner and more often. It, it brings in the odds of you getting it. So you've used a lot of improv in your career. Now, as an actor, because as I said, you have a, a great resume, and I know I've seen you're going to be on Veep, which... Uh, yes. which it's going to be a ways off, but it's, yeah, we're going to have some fun. I love that show. We it just, we, yeah. watch, we watch it every Sunday. I actually, I got a... Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a Lucy level, forever, Carol Burnett level, honored forever comic force. Well, with your acting, you know, because you've worked with so many great people, how, you know, your career, when you started out... What kind of roles are you getting? Because your career, you've you've grown, you've lasted, and you've gone from different roles now, you know. Yeah, you, well, I you can't, have, can't you have, book the kind of stuff I did there. I don't look like him anymore. Well, God, what kind of roles? Sort of, sort of book what you look like and let the, the, the record of what you've done before lead them a little bit, what they kind of feel. Well, you could probably do lots of this. So I got lots of cops for a while and all that with my mustache and and feds and, and FBI and CIA for a while. I was a big batch of that. And uh, with the beard, I get professors and uh, city councilmen on uh, togetherness. I played that. Uh, they just reran that. And um, coming up on the parts I'm playing now as the congressman on Veep, I can have a beard. And uh, the guy I'm on dying up here, uh, that's going to be on Showtime. I can't go into tons of detail just yet, but uh, that's also a thing where I can keep a beard. And because I'm bald, I uh, I want some hair somewhere near my head. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I always have to weigh the, weigh in the same on the meat scale every morning. You know? I, I used to always say when I when I would grow a goatee, it was my bald deflector because bald. Yeah, focus down here, ladies. Yeah, you don't, don't, you, don't, you don't they don't look at you and go, he's bald. Yeah. They go, oh, he's got facial hair, and it always yeah. worked. It's, he's very focused. He's very focused with his hair. <laughs> now, very concentrated. Now, for your career, what have some of your favorite roles been? Because you've had so many. I mean, you were in Willow. You've been in all different stuff. What, what oh, kind of, Willow was great. Gung Ho was great. What uh, made them great? I mean, to you, was it just the people you're working with? I mean, as working an actor, with Ron Howard, working on Willow uh, with George uh, Lucas, and with Ron Howard team together. Can you imagine? And Kevin Pollack, and uh, you know, so that was fun every day on the set. Uh, it was loads of fun. We helped uh, set the record for the most amount of blue screen people stuck into a shot in all of history. (laughs) (laughs) When we had beaten Darby O'Gill and the Little People for the record. They also invented morphing for that film. Uh, 
There you go. Uh, now, another favorite film I did uh, was in uh, Groundhog Day. You know, I'm drunk and having fun with Bill Murray in the car. That was loads of fun. And then I had another great time doing uh, uh, Year One with Harold Ramis and uh, Jack Black and Mike Sarah. <coughs> now, now, when you did... And- when you did those yeah, movies, did they let you improv because yeah, of, your, of your reputation? Harold Ramis is a Second City guy, so we came up with that shtick. You know, I'm totally like this on me because I, I, I'm, I'm working with Vinnie Jones. I said, he talks like this. Well, I'm going to talk like that as well. So, you know, we were like the two guys like that, the Cockney guys. And uh, and I, I'm going to play around with the whip and, uh, and Mike Sarah. We just come up with little beats on that. It was so wonderfully written, you didn't have to add a ton. But in Groundhog Day, we came up with lots of the choreography, getting in and out of the car. I'm drunk, I'm sliding on the ice, and Bill says he'll drive and all that. Some of that was written in a lot of the shtick we came up with because Harold just said, what do you got? Now, do you feel... Isn't that great? That's that awesome. The director I, asks you, what do you got? Yeah, I was going to say, that's just got to sit there. I mean, you must sit it's, there and go to set and be your, like, oh, my God. Like they do it, It's like they do it once. They're not going to stop. They're not going to say, okay, you did it today. You can't do it tomorrow. It must be great. It, just, no. it must make no, the morale you amazing. Can't do it. You know the scene's got to get to a certain place at a certain time. And, it just, you know, and, and just adding shit won't always help it. There's also a, you have to have that thing in you where you know a scene is perfect. Don't insult everybody. Right. Don't insult everybody that... that uh, They, I just think in the in the market we have a place for improv now that is coming out of seeing it win everywhere, seeing TV shows based on it like Curb Your Enthusiasm, seeing uh, movies, uh, Christopher Guest, entire fucking films make a fortune, and the writer doesn't always. They don't always dig it, so you know sometimes a writer writes a beat sheet, but you, and you don't want to piss that writer off in that room. You got to know what's a my Christopher Guest kind of movie and what's a, this is beautifully written. You honor that and you do it. And your improv is in how you interpret those finely crafted words. Because they are, they are, you're, you're still improvising something. You're a partner at all times. You're not a slave. Even when you have to do the words, you interpret, you bring what you got to bring to them. That's where your improv goes. It never stops being an improv, and you just have to invite tons of memory to the process. Now, do you that do, makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense because yeah, well, that's true. Now, do you do that with your stand up now? Because I mean, how often do you do stand up now? I mean, are you are you? Uh, it depends. It's not like I used to. It wasn't every night. Like, not every night like it used to be. Like now, I, I go if it's a charity thing, I do it. Sometimes people, hey, you got it. You want to come down and do my night? I got a night somewhere. Okay, I'll come down to your night. One of those things, or or you know. Uh, but or charity fundraisers. Well, how has your act changed over the years? I mean, because we all grow. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, just I mean, what you know? And had, did you notice? Was there certain points that you sat there and you said, "I started changing"? Like me, you know, when I got back into it, I had that fear of not getting the laugh. But then I said, "I'm just going to tell some stories." And I don't need to do the one line and stuff like that. And they were just like sort of defining moments. Was there defining moments where you've seen in your career as stand-up where you've veered to different areas and then gotten to the point where you are now? I I thought I was going to be like Steve Martin. 
I thought I was going to do some comedy and then some funny movies and I could do whatever I wanted, you know. I kind of used his career as a template. And uh, you have to adjust to what happens, man. And the adjustment is based on finding out what else you're capable of. And I think people that are handed too much success too early have no idea what they're made of. And that's the confusion that fucks up their lives. They weren't put to a test where they had to adapt to other conditions. When they're young and adaptability is their thing. Later you adapt, it's slow, it's rusty. doesn't go easy. Uh, uh, that's why I keep reinforcing get improv skills as soon as you can so it stays formatted in your life for the rest of your existence. Yeah, I don't know, you know. What? I don't know beyond that what to tell people except that I think the market still wants what you could do if you could learn how to do that. Well, and it's tough. There's a lot of us, but it's still the shortest list out of all of them. There's a lot of actors. There's a lot of comedians. Not a lot of actor comedians who know how to do good improv. That's now, a shorter list. Now, for you, it's, I mean, it was just years of doing it in the teaching does your stand-up act now, do you still do a lot of improv, or do you sit and write bits? How do you formulate when you're going to do a, yeah, a show? I, I, both. But if you go see a... We, did we talk about set list last time, right? Uh, did you about set list? No, let's talk about, right, about set list. Prevenza was set just list. on, so I want to hear about your take on set list. Yeah, my take on set list is it's one of the great breakthroughs for stand-up, because it's, it's making a game of the thing you would be doing to write anything original ever. It's... People say, well, I'm not an improv. When you get down on a pad and you're taking hours, you're just arduously and slowly improvising. Right. You're doing the same thing. You're just making it look like Sisyphus rolling a rock up the hill. You know? So <clears throat> I think it's like dial-up and DSL doing the same thing. Explain. Dial-up, waiting for that fucking tone and for the, the data to flow or just trusting that your subconscious does all that. It just does it at the speed of light. It does it live time. It writes, acts, directs at the speed of light. It's the same, demystifying it, it's the same process. Now, where have you done set list? I know, have you done it all over the world? Mm, well, Scotland. Now, what was that like? Because you, are you, are you, that was amazing, man. They put it in the caves, in Edinburgh, and the caves, ancient, you know, like thousand-year-old structures with water dripping out of these roughly hewn stacked rock walls. No real, you know, what you call modern masonry involved at all. Put that there. Put mud in between. <laughs> more. Put more. And so. uh the, uh, the echo, the sound, the history, even the dank smell, it was all part of you feel like it's a, some crazy ritual there. It was amazing. And the crowds love smart, original comedy there. They reward you when you nail it right. And do not, if you go over there, let an MC give you a long intro. That's a trick. They're doing it to fuck you over there because if once the crowd heard you gave them a long intro, they hate you for your set. Why is they, that? They, they <laughs> want to be, we'll decide if you're good and we don't care about your credits to trick us into liking you before we see the quality of your work. That must be 
great for someone, especially someone like you, that has so many credits. We always joke about, you know, some will say, okay, like I could say in my credit, he's been on the Alan DeGeneres show. Well, okay, here's what I've done on the Alan DeGeneres show. I played on a skit. I played one of Huey Lewis's news and I played Matt Lauer's top of his head. I don't consider that as a TV credit. But you know, people will do that in their intro. I mean, I laid and they said, your head, the top of your head looks like Matt Lauer. They called me in. I green screened it. I, I wouldn't say that in my, my credits. But what's your take on the credits? When like you, What's like your credits? Because you have so many. Do you just say, hey, I just say I'm Rick Overton? What do you say when the... Yeah, it's tough. I, the latest one is I'm saying I'm the hammer dad from the GE commercial. <laughs> Because like, and then I'll watch the audience go on a couple of heads go oh, nah, nah, elbow elbow whisper whisper okay good we're using that one. Otherwise it's huh the Drake from who the what from what you know it's like an old credit where they look at me I don't even look like the credit anymore. It's... I don't look like the person from the movie. <laughs> so, and yeah, so isn't that isn't that like the difference is also how people are with TV? You'll get noticed for being the guy on the commercial. But you've done so many other things that people don't notice you. Isn't it weird how our attention span is that people will they recognize commercial? That's right. Yeah, they uh, they recognize uh, the commercial because it plays the most of anything. You see it the most often. It keeps replaying. It's not like waiting for someone's scene in a movie. It's just your scene. That's it. <laughs> over and over and over and over. Sometimes on one show, they'll run it three times. Now, now, how easy it for you, is it for you, someone who has the background in improv and stand-up and has the chops, has been doing it for years, when they come in, how easy it for you is it for you just to nail the line in a commercial? And sometimes you probably, because you have to know what you're doing, because as you said, you're, you, you're, you were so respected in improv. How easy is it for you just to like deliver a line? And sometimes they sit there and take it a lot longer than you're like, okay, we, we got it. Well, yeah, you got to think in terms, even when you're doing Curb Your Enthusiasm, you have to think in terms of how much time this is going to take. Because Larry David's going, uh, yeah, but we got to, this whole thing has to take this amount of time because there's all that other stuff. And we have a half hour plus the role in the beginning of the show and the end credits. So you're not getting a clean half. So you got to really uh, don't go um or um or um too much in the scene or we just can't use the scene, you know? Right. And so you screwed yourself by humming too much. So you hummed yourself off the map. But you, you, you nail lines pretty quick because you're, you're, you're a pro. Well, you learn to improv and think of a tight line that would be funny there. If you see in Dinner for Schmucks, I improvise that line where I lean over to the guy with the vulture and go, are they cute when they're little or are they pretty much this horrible the whole time? And right. they they just they said cut and the room disintegrated and they left it in. So, you know. How fun was that set? Because you had so many talented guys and you're playing just such oddballs. How fun. Oh, it was, it was impossible to hold one complete tape without a <laughs> when you know when they're doing the psychic blasting back and where Zach is shooting at him you know with the psychic zing thoughts and stuff you know shooting at Steven so I mean is it just... anyway I thought it was uh, it was a wonderfully uh, you know it was a fun, a fun ensemble I, I, uh, I you know I did pretty good made, made some pretty good and I thought it was a good message about how you treat people that's true. That's good. Now, also, I saw on your on your credits, you're, you're in Grimm? 
Yeah. <clears throat> what I'm is in, that? Uh, 219 episode. Now, I'm Uncle Felix. Now, I'm now, German. I'm Uncle Felix. Now, is it, is it, does it throw you off like when you get called for like a, such a dark show? Because you are such a strong comedic actor. I mean, you're a great actor. But like, what, do they sit there and go, okay, do, they, do people know of your comedy background when you go in for certain roles? Yeah, most of the time now, unless it's a brand new casting person. People will call me on a more regular basis. Uh, they kind of know what they're getting. And your job is to show them that you're even more than what they thought they were getting. Every time you go in, it's just let them, you know, don't don't push it and overdo it unless that's what's called for. But really bring it when you do it. So they, you want to get that one, you want to have their eyes, have that calm look in the eyes, but the eyebrows go, huh? Just up a little bit, just a little, three millimeters up, you got them. You just you made them notice you've got a new skill set or you refined it in another place. They're going to call you more often. And it isn't about, oh, I'm going to be ten times bigger in the part. That isn't the point. The point is not the size of how you're doing this. The point is, are you, are you willing to modify yourself a little bit? It's like some of the improv. You know what? That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Is that some of this improv is how you grow and you change yourself. You're improvising your own evolution in art, because how can you know how much better you'd be at a thing until you tried it, right? Right. Now, now, as to stand-up, how do you think it's changed over the years from when you started? I think stand-up got saturated, and it's, it, it, it's branching out. There's alternative comedy now. Everyone's got a new... F- and then there's the... Uh, it, it comes back from being an alternative to alternative comedy. And it comes right back around again. I see it going round and round and round. It cycles. Sketch is big for a while. Sketchfest is huge. And uh, in that is a lot of improv. Improv with uh, UCB and all that is lines going out the door for all the show students waiting months to get in. I demand because they recognize the skill set as something that pays for itself much sooner than, say, a medical school loan would, <laughs> you right. know, for as far as getting payback results and paying off the loan. So I have a feeling uh, it's going to keep evolving. It'll go through seasons where comedy then dips again, and everyone says it all sucks. You keep hearing the phase, or all comedy blows, and then there's a, a renaissance, and then it blows again, and it, they're talking about the same exact material. They just, they're tired of hearing it now. now they love it, and tired of it, you know, and it's anytime anything repeats too much. That's the jokes don't work when you hear a formula too much. Now, would you ever stop doing stand-up, or is it just in your blood? I don't know, man. I, I, it never occurred to me to stop doing it, like an intentional cessation of it. I just, uh, I got acting work and, you know, it's got a union with medical and dental. That's pretty good, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you want that, right? Oh, you need that. Yeah, so uh, I, I do the stand-up. At, there's guys, my peers, who they stayed with that and they're making a fortune. They're literally making a fortune. They're doing ships and they're doing corporates oh my god the money they make out of corporate that's like a year's salary for most people um and you have to build that and you have to build the trust of the corporations and you have to live in the conscripts of the world they hire from so you can't really express certain opinions online because they check that stuff and they want 
I make sure you're on their team, and you know, I kind of like saying what I like to say. Now, that's uh, why I probably couldn't run for politics either. I think you'd be a good politician. You, you, oh, but you, they, I like saying uh, Ricky likes saying what he likes. Right. Well, that's what we need. Uh, so, so, so now, do you, do you have an audition? Uh, maybe you know what? If Bernie wins, maybe there'd be a place for me in the ball. But right now, it doesn't seem like they'd go for it. Are you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, who are you supporting for the election? Three guesses. I would say you're a Bernie guy. Yeah. Because uh, water, water, unfracked water. Clean water is more important than anyone's life, than anyone's separate life. It's more important than any religion. It's more important than any amount of money or career or language or relationship or friendship. There's no life without water. Everything, every other word goes away without water. It's more important than every other issue on earth. And so that's the single most important issue there is of anything. Now, why does why don't we're dead without that part? Why don't people talk about that as much? Well, they do. You're just checking the wrong sources to hear it. Don't go to the large news. That's a sick parent who won't ever tell you they love you. They'll never say, I love you, and we got to stop going there and asking them and then being hurt every time they don't. They don't know how. They're sick. So now, what news do you watch? Where, where, do, you, where do you get your news? Because you're always, you're always informed. You always post really good stuff. Where do you get your news? Uh, I have uh, the Young Turks. I recommend uh, U.S. Uncut. Uh, alternate, some raw story, though they're starting to swing one way. Everything that gets too many ads on it, you go, ah, they got them. Once there's too many ads on any news entity, they're they're restricted now. They're bought. Now, you are going to an audition today or a meeting? I'm I'm going to a meeting. Okay. I'm driving in the car right now, and we're still good to talk for a while. So, and the Skype is working great, man. I know. I just got my new car. And uh, the Bluetooth is grooving. That's cool. Now, isn't Skype great? Because, you know, the studio I got closed and I had to start getting guests. And it's it makes it so much more convenient because people, you can Skype me from your car. You could be going to a meeting and you could be talking to me, which is amazing. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And you talk to someone and you could do this podcast in Europe, you know. Oh, I know. It's, it's, it's I've done, I mean, last week I had people on from Philadelphia. I had someone from New York. And isn't it amazing? Like, like with technology for us, like, wouldn't comedy have been a lot easier to get gigs years ago if we had all this technology? In some ways, I think, I think some of our skill sets are reliant on them in a way that we just had to go raw. There was something raw about contacting an audience, not worrying about all the technical stuff. I guess there was always some technical show concern, yes, but... Uh, everyone see you bring your tape recorder on stage with this giant thing with piano keys on the front of it. <laughs> Remember the cassette recorder with the big black plastic with the with the chrome grill and the handle on it? Yeah, it had the handle that slid up. <laughs> yeah, you want to listen to it, but there's no headsets. You just I remember when my when I graduated college, I, I said I wanted to do stand up. My brother got me one of those little micro cassettes, and I didn't know what the hell to do with it. To, to get, the micro, you're like James Bond. Yeah, I was like, wow, I'm like the cassette's so small. What do I do? And then you sit there and you, you would want to play it, but the quality was never good because it was so small, and you couldn't play it in a big big tape player. Right, and then you'd be sitting at home rewinding. What was that fucking joke I said? I can't hear what I said over the last. God damn it. We 
got a rap sound, right? Yeah, we got a rap soon. What is coming up for you? What can we look for you, Rick? What's what's going on? Like we get you get some. Are you are you gonna do some more setless shows? I just did one, but I'm gonna be at the Bridgeport Comedy Festival in Oregon in uh, early June. So and, guys up in Oregon, if you're listening in, come and pay a visit and have a laugh with us. Now, what will you be doing? An improv set or a stand-up set, or what? Or is it I'll be, be doing a bunch of different things, including uh, both of those. Yes. And so, what yeah, are I'm you... going to do a set list, and I'm going to do uh, stand-up and uh, another couple of games, and we're just arranging it all now. But I'm going to do, you know, when I'm there at the festivals, sign me up. Do you like the festivals? I have to do a game. You know, I like guesting in. I like trying new things. I like stretching and expanding and seeing what your skill sets really are. It used to be they said, you know. By the time you're 60, you're all washed up, and now new research says this one entire other lifetime you begin a sequence of if you're healthy. And 60 to 80, there's an enormous burst of other kind of creativity. And it comes with a, <clears throat> being seasoned and having looked at the other parts of your life. You take wiser chances, but you still take them, and you find all this wealth of other stuff. People begin to paint at this age and all that shit. You know, you've seen these... Uh, People later on in their career, they find another thing. So I'm aiming at all still in the stuff that I love, the verbal jazz, the verbal music, you know, improv. You're, you're sort of like a jazz musician to comedy. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. I think that's very high flattery. Thank you for saying that. Steve. No, because you do. You, you do. you do the riff. You do your own. You're not, you're not contained. That's what they say about jazz musicians. They get up and they riff. You know, you seem to, you know, you. we know you can write because, you know, you've written for TV shows. But when you go on stage, you seem to just, you just, you. I think you enjoy the riffing. Oh, what, what is writing? Exactly. Writing is ripping out your hands. It's either theft or ripping, and there's no third option. It is one of the two. So I say honor the one you want, which do you want to be known for? Be Work on the one you, you, you'd like your reputation to be. Done. Right. Well, Rick, right. Yeah. we got to wrap up. See, an hour flies by. You know that I'm glad. You, I'm glad we uh, worked this out. And uh, now, I, I'm glad we got to talk, man, and get caught up, buddy. Everything good with you? What's the latest? What are you coming up? What do you got? I got you know just the Cooper talk and some other stuff going on. You know, I might start doing a little stand up again. Where do people find there you? Me? Go. I'm thinking of it. I'm thinking of getting on stage just to have fun. I sort of miss it. So. Yeah, come do a set list out at uh, Flappers in Burbank when Troy sets up another one of the uh, the nights for uh, try set list tryouts. Okay, that's cool. Well, you got I know. Yeah, you're gonna love it. Don't worry, you're gonna love it. I know. Prevenza was on, and Prevenza talked about it just a few months ago. So it's always good. So now, do you, do you yeah. tweet? Do you, are you a Twitter guy? Uh, at Rick Overton, uh, Rick Overton on Facebook, and. Uh, what I got going on right now, brother. Well, I want to thank you, Rick. People, so check out Rick Overton. Go to IMDb. Go Netflix some of his old movies. Just go watch yeah. the guy. He's he's a talent. And uh, so, yeah, so people follow him. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. Yeah. I, I have over 500. Check, him out. check this guy out. We're going to bug him. Bug him to get back up there. I will. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Stevie. We'll talk I'll soon. Be up there, pal. I See will. You soon. Okay. okay. All right, take it easy. All right, so people, so go check him out. Also, uh, don't forget my website, uh, CooperTalk.net, Instagram, CooperTalk1, where I put a lot of pictures up. Um, As I said, Twitter, 
Uh, words with friends, message me. We'll play. I'm Cooper Talk One. And my other website, stopthesalt.com. As you know, when I went through that health problem, I wrote a cookbook, 120 easy recipes. Easy to make. No pictures. You won't be intimidated. No big list of ingredients. You know, you don't have cumin. Don't worry. I'm not giving you a recipe with cumin. Go check it out. Go to stopthesalt.com. It's $9.95 plus shipping and handling. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. But if you get it from me, I'll sign it for you. And I'll send it to you. And I make more money. And also, GoFundMe slash Cooper Talk. Trying to get into the SAG union. So go check that out. If you want to send a uh, donation, I have lots of perks to give you. So do that. So don't forget, check out Rick Overton. Funny, funny guy. I'm Steve Cooper at Cooper Talk, www.coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.